0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning everybody, welcome to this Resolution Foundation event and Happy New Year. You've obviously all been making resolutions. Most of them have already been broken or were probably pointless (laughs) in the first place. But a good resolution for the new year is that you should come to all Resolution Foundation events (laughs) because you will get personal improvement, which is what all resolutions are notionally about, and it might actually be useful and it's easier to stick to because unlike the gym, it's free. So anyway, well done coming everyone today. My name's Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the uh, Foundation. Now we're here to talk about living standards for two reasons, one, with the Living Standards Think Tank, so we do that every day anyway. And two, because the country is living through a cost of living crisis, you've all probably been living through that over the course of the uh, last year, and we're going to be living through elements of that as we keep going through. Come in, everyone. Come in. Close the doors. There's a. Uh, there's. So that's the plan for today, and we're doing that because we've today published our Living Standards Outlook 2023. It's got a suitably snowy cover on it to kind of get you in the mood for the part of the year in. and we're going to try and do two things today, Give you a summary of what's in that report. You obviously already know that the last year has been really tough. everyone trying to pay their energy bills,' watching the price of food. Um, go up, anticipating maybe what's to come. Everyone knows it's been tough. We're going to try and do two things within that. One, we're going to try and get to the lived experience of what that's actually been like for different kinds of households, thanks to a very large, actually, 10,000-person survey that was done over the course of uh, recent months, very gratefully funded by the Health Foundation, which I'll come back to in a second, and we're going to um, look forward and think plausibly what comes next because those of you paying attention to the news if you once you got past the like top strike story that's on the news every day will have got to other bits of the news where there has actually been some good news on the economics over the course of recent months and the question is that is that good news for economists or is that good news for households and what is the nature of how this crisis is going to evolve over the coming years insofar as we know because there's a lot of uncertainty. So that is the plan. So first of all, you're going to hear from uh, Emily Fry, who's an economist at the Resolution Foundation and one of the authors of the report, and she's going to give you a whistle-stop tour of the report. Then you're going to hear from Anila Anwar, who's the Chief Executive of Z2K, Since we, as we were discussing, since the middle of the pandemic. She was a great time to start in a, a job, and they do a great job addressing poverty in London in particular. They're, and she's going to give us their uh, perspective. And then you're going to hear from Jennifer Dixon, Chief Executive of the Health Foundation, as I say, one of the people that have made this report. Uh, possible and of doing increasing amounts of work on the overlap between health and the economic determinants of that uh, health over the course of the last well, actually quite a few years now three four five years so the um, so that is the plan as always you can ask uh, questions go on to slido uh, and the hashtag is living standards because it's always living standards when you come to one of these uh, events uh, if you're in the room you can put your hand up it's good to see lots of people here in person that's what you know no fewer train strikes today is doing there are some strikes today on there Driving instructors. I'm sorry if any of you have had your driving instructor lessons cancelled. They're the trains for the future, anyway, people. Right, Emily, come on, kick us off.
1: Thank you, Torsten. I'd like to thank my report co-authors, Mike Brewer and Lala Tri, as well as the Health Foundation for supporting this work. So I'm going to start by talking about how we've got where we are. 2022, as we know, was a grim year for living standards. Inflation reached its highest level in 41 years, driven by globally rising prices for energy and goods. Despite 58 billion pounds of support from the government for households during this cost of living crisis, and despite some of the highest wage nominal pay growth since 1991, living standards fell. To explore where this crisis has left households this winter, we surveyed 10,000 adults. This chart shows some of the results from this survey. Three quarters of people said that they had tried to cut back on overall spending, with four in five people trying to cut back on energy. But workers in lower income households were far more likely to say that they had cut back a lot than higher income households. And Younger and middle-aged people were almost twice as likely to say that they are cutting back a lot on overall spending. We compare the results of our survey on the right-hand side with ONS data from the pre-pandemic on the left-hand side here, and this shows instances of food insecurity, which is a composite measure of the ability to afford food and the experiences that people are facing of hunger which have more than tripled from pre-pandemic levels and now cover almost a third of adults are experiencing moderate or severe food insecurity. In November, for example, 6 million adults reported that they were hungry in the last month but didn't eat because they lacked enough money to afford food. This was more than twice the number pre-pandemic. It's alarming, of course, that these outcomes are far more common among groups who are known to experience disadvantage. Food insecurity has grown far more rapidly for black and Asian people as well as for families with more children. And as family budgets become unsustainable, arrears and debts are building, particularly among low-income families. Almost a quarter of workers in low-income families are behind on one or more bill compared with 5% of workers in higher-income families. By far the most likely reasons that people state for falling behind on these bills are the rising costs of energy, as well as the rising costs of essentials. And the crisis is having serious consequences for health, even when we compare with periods during the pandemic. Our survey showed that more than 40% of people feel constantly under strain. And this is felt particularly acutely for people who are experiencing some of these effects of the cost of living crisis, such as falling behind on bills. So three quarters of people who are behind on two or more bills are feeling constantly under strain. So where does this leave us? So in this next section, I'll bring together the outlook for our economic challenges across inflation, across wages, across taxes, uh, to understand what's this aggregate effect on our incomes over the next period. The good news, is that inflation might have peaked at its 40-year high. We might see the back of double-digit inflation this year as supply chains ease and some of the global pressures come off. But the major components of the rise in inflation are energy and food, which do form a larger proportion of lower-income households' budgets. And food is still continuing to climb. And food inflation reached 16.4% in November last year. So that was the good news <laughs> the bad news is that uh if we look at start looking at wages so this chart shows an index of wages which are indexed to q1 2022 and as you can see wages have fallen rapidly in 2022 and in fact will fall further in 2022 as wage rises continue to be less than inflation however wage growth does turn around at the back end of this year But as you can see from this chart, real earnings grow a lot more slowly after this period, um, which means that it will take until 2027 or so to reach back to the the levels that they were Q1 2022. This, of course, follows a long period, a decade of poor wage growth, and wages at present are approximately the same level as they were pre-financial crisis. As you can see on the left chart, wholesale gas prices are falling has been a good news story over the Christmas period. They're about 80% below the levels that they peaked at in August of, this year, of last year. But as the right chart shows, household energy bills won't move, don't move in lockstep with these wholesale prices due to the off-gen price cap and the effects of the energy price guarantee. So this means that households won't feel the benefits of these wholesale price falls uh, as government support is about to become a lot less generous from April. The typical energy bill over 2023 to 2024 will rise to £2,850 from about £2,000 from 2022 to 2023. So about a 40% rise in our energy costs next year. On on tax, as income tax threshold freezes have been implemented from the autumn statement, this will create fiscal drag dragging more households into higher income tax brackets. On average, this will cost a typical household £700 compared to a price index threshold. This is particularly affecting middler and higher income households um, who face higher tax rates. This chart is looking at uh, how mortgages are affected by this cost of living crisis. The blue line on this chart shows that mortgages have experienced relative income growth since 2006, benefiting from low interest rates over that period. But with the bank rate reaching 3.5%, having risen from 0.25% in January 2022, mortgage interest payments rise, and you can see the blue line on the chart falling sharply as a result. So mortgages' incomes will fall over this period as they face Mortgage interest rate payments of about 2.5 times higher uh, in 2024 than at the beginning of 2022. So with these drivers, how can we bring them together and what that means for household incomes? So this comes together and shows us that we are in a two-year crisis. If you focus on the dark red bars on the right-hand side of the chart, you can see a two-year fall of 7%, which is about £2,100 for a typical household. It's bigger than the financial crisis, which saw a 5% fall and it is large in historic standards. If this chart shows 60 years of data and the fall that next year, 2023 to 2024, is set to be the largest single year fall since 1975. On the bright side, incomes will start growing again in 2024 to 2025. So this is a short period that we do recover from. This chart now looks at the distributional pattern for 20... And if you focus on 2022 to 2023 and 2023 to 2024, you can see a similar distributional pattern in this chart. The red bars show those on lower incomes and sensible policy to uprate benefits in line with inflation has protected the lowest income households for some of the worst uh, outcomes of this crisis. Whereas for the richest income households, they face uh, an an even greater fall um, in incomes over this period. Apart from if you focus on the blue bars on the right-hand side of each period, which is the top 5% of households, whose incomes will in fact rise by 4% over this period as they benefit from higher uh, savings, interest rates, uh, kind of the opposite of, of the mortgages. This cost of living crisis period is unique. The most recent parliament is on the right-hand side of this chart and it shows that it will be the worst parliament on record where incomes, mostly across the distribution, will fall and will fall significantly. And this means that uh, absolute poverty, which is a fixed measure of poverty, which you would expect to typically fall over time as incomes grow, is in fact rising during this period. An additional 800,000 people will fall into absolute poverty. And what's concerning in particular is that child poverty rises by the most. Approximately 400,000 children will fall into absolute poverty over this period, in particular driven by the fact that families uh, have a two-child limit. So if you're a larger family, you won't receive a larger proportion of benefits. And the cost of living payments haven't been adjusted for the number of children in in the household. So where does this all leave us? How should policymakers think about this period going forward? Despite some positive economic news and some positive signs on inflation, it's clear that another challenging year lies ahead. The benefit system is taking a lot of the strain and is the key uh, mechanism that the government is using to implement a lot of policies, which means that if people are entitled to benefits, they, should, they must sign up for them. Larger families are in real trouble. Cost of living payments would have ideally taken into account family size and the two child limits should be reviewed. And despite wholesale gas price falls, the peak of energy bills is ahead of us. We'll expect a renewed debate about the level of the energy price guarantee and we should have a longer term solution, such as a social tariff which can can support both energy need and lower income households. I'll hand back to Torsten.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Emily. Well done. Some of this isn't surprising, hopefully, for any of you, which is it's a difficult time for everybody, but it is definitely more difficult for some than others. That comes across very clearly from the survey. Mm. On looking ahead, we should be thinking about this as a two-year crisis, even though it already feels like it's been going on forever. We're one year in, but there's a year to to go, even though the economic data is actually starting to turn around to some degree, and that's because because price rises are getting smaller doesn't mean prices themselves are actually falling. And as we'll come back to in the discussion, it's price levels that obviously matter for um, households. Now there's lots more details on what the survey results show and the underpinning of the modelling in the report. So please do make sure you get a chance to read it and it's hashtag living standards on slide Anela, anyway, what do you reckon?
2: Well, first of all, just thank you. Thank you so much for um, such a fantastic piece of research, which I think shows the, the scale and the depth of the issue. Um, it's not surprising, but I hope it's shocking. I think we can become immune to what is in reality a really, really difficult time um, for people across the country. Um, at Z2K, we support um, those who are in more precarious at the very lower end of uh, living standards or the income distribution, those who rely on social security uh, as all or most of their income to make ends meet. And, and they've unfortunately been experiencing a cost of living crisis since before the pandemic. Um, And and your findings in the report really chime with our clients' experiences. Um, Unfortunately, uh, too many are denied the social security benefits they're entitled to because of um, an inadequate assessments process. So whilst I absolutely support uh, the call in your report for people who are entitled to benefits to take those up, there are inherent flaws with the system that deny people those rights and entitlements, and through our support we help many, but not all, uh, secure those entitlements at tribunal. And there are far too many out there who who, who don't appeal for whatever reason. We also see so many issues with maladministration uh, to do with benefits, uh, but also things like deductions and, and some of the policy choices, as you've um, said, around caps and um, the two-child limit, fees on local um, housing elements, etc., that are really impacting people's ability to make ends meet. Um, our clients are going out going without essentials, so it really chimes when you say around the level of food insecurity. We're seeing that with our clients who don't have enough money to um, for basic essentials like energy costs and food. Um, we see that not just with those who are denied their rights and entitlements, but also with those who are absolutely receiving all of the maximum benefits that they're entitled to, which just shows that... Uh, benefit levels are inadequate and do not support a minimum income um, standard for people. Uh, and for that reason we've had to create our own hardship funds. We do our best to try and access, and I know you mentioned this in your report, uh, discretionary uh, funds at a local authority level, um, but they either don't exist or there aren't enough. So we've had to create our own hardship funds where we support people to access Uh, Grants to be able to put food on the table or to be able to top up their energy meter uh, to have their heating on for a few hours of the day Uh, most of our clients have a disability or health condition Uh, majority are from black and minority ethnic communities and Not having enough money for those essentials. is just exacerbating the inequality they're experiencing, but also those health conditions that they are experiencing so they didn't have the financial resilience coming into the pandemic and this cost of living crisis in order to uh, manage it as well as others, as you've highlighted in your report. Uh, they're building up debt. They're missing out, um, missing payments on uh, priority bills, not just um, other types of bills, uh, which is just worsening their financial resilience. As you've said, you know, this is not a one-year crisis, it's a two-year crisis for our clients. I think it will be longer than that, to be honest. Um, and it's impacting their health, uh, which is again impacting their opportunities uh, and their ability um, to move out of the situation that they're in and the inequality and disadvantage that they're experiencing. Um, I I suppose I would really urge us to continue to focus on those who are most impacted. I think you'd said that the the pandemic, the cost of living crisis Uh, inflation, increased costs, it's being felt by all, but not equally. Um, And I think as we come out of the current government support, absolutely fantastic and we support the fact that it has targeted those most in need. I think we need to see that continuing. Uh, Brilliant that benefits are um, being uprated in line with inflation, but that's not kicking in until April and our clients have been experiencing these increased costs for, for a long period of time. Um, So I think we do really need to look at how we um, measure the adequacy of benefits levels in relation to uh, people's living standards. Um, And I absolutely agree that we need to be looking at things like the benefit cap, the two-child limit, the freeze on local housing allowance. Um, But for us, our key campaign priority at the moment is really looking at disability benefits assessments. At the moment, the process is inadequate, it's flawed, it's denying people the rights and entitlements and having to go through a very lengthy and arduous appeals process for a tribunal within five minutes to say, well, you're entitled to these benefits and to have them in place and people are going without money that they're entitled to during that period of time. And by the time they go through their appeal, they're ready for a reassessment um, and they have to go through this many go round and cycle again. So that's something that I would really r- urge everyone to, to, to get behind in terms of ours and others uh, campaigns around trying to improve that system. And I think there'll be an opportunity over the course of the next 12 months with uh, hopefully a white paper being published soon um, to input further thoughts um, along those lines. Um, I think that's kind of... That's, a, that's lots of food for thought. That is that's that great. right? Thank you very much indeed. Most, most of my reflections.
0: A general issue on the more focus in policy making circles both on disability from a labour market perspective but also from a um, Role within the benefit system you, is you can see fast creeping up the agenda, whether it's because on the administrative side mm. we're not managing to process claims as fast as well, we are processing fast, there's a lot of claims coming in now, they, um, or whether it's because people are worried about labour like, market inactivity. So the issue is definitely, as you say, we should have a white paper hopefully before the spring, but we shall Let's see. Now, Jennifer, over to you. <laughs>
3: Well firstly thank you very much to Emily and your team for producing a really excellent report. Um, This is such an important issue the the detail that's needed is actually delivered in this report so well done you and also to Torsten for leadership here. Um, I think the results are really clear I don't really need to rehearse those of course the impact is worst on the lowest income as you see and children that's the The thing that i think is particularly worrying and of course essentials being cut back on as you heard heating food debt and stress uh, and so on and so forth government support welcome but insufficient i think many people have written about that and uh, anila has talked about that uh, very well too Um, i think from my perspective i'll just say a little bit about health because uh, i think it's just important to clock a few things I mean, with this level of stress going on, it, it's kind of obvious that there will be an effect on health, and in fact, lots of evidence in the past with similar economic insults shows the same. Uh, the kinds of things that we'll be seeing, as you can expect, as mental health uh, problems, stress, anxiety, depression, emotional distress, as you see reported, uh, and that uh, is in the short-term, but of course, that will produce longer-term weathering, as we say, in health, that will affect the body. Uh, and result in later issues. Um, We also see the exacerbation of physical ill health um, and chronic disease. Many people on low incomes have chronic disease anyway. This will make things worse. Uh, And, of course, not least, if you can't heat your cold home, then you are susceptible to respiratory conditions, worsening, cardiovascular dementia, and so on. And actually, Q1, which is where we are now, is usually the worst period for excess mortality to do with cold. Um, So... And then of course, there may well be earlier onset of chronic disease as a result of this stress and weathering that we will expect in future. And the other thing I want to point to here is child development as well. You saw, you heard about all the kids being affected. Poverty affects school readiness, stress leading to behavioral problems and developmental delay. So all of that sort of affects the health stock, both in the immediate term, but also into the future. And I would say that this is a short-term insult, as you say, you know, the two-year graph you, you, you saw there. But this is grafted on to quite a considerable number of insults that have happened in the recent past uh, or not so recent past. So we've obviously had the pandemic over the last couple of years. You know all about that. Then we've had, of course, 10 years of austerity before that with the public sector security blanket being frayed. And then before that, you had the economic hit of 2008, and then before that, um, in 1990, the recession then, or at least the economic uh, difficulties in that period, and then again in the early 80s. And you know, there's a there's a set of evidence in healthcare, which in health, which shows the long-run effects of this type of insult. On on health and then that is also further back you also have to consider perhaps what Angus Steaton and Anne Case consider which is the longer run of impacts of structural economic change on communities which have crushed some communities certainly here and uh, certainly in the US and in particular in the Northeast of England and uh, in particular as we are now seeing um, uh, we have fraying of health in particular in the 25 to 44 year old age group um, which is a younger age group. So, uh, so, so that's the sort of background of insults, if you like. And then I think the other thing to point out on the health side, if you, if you don't mind me continuing on the health theme, is that we, do have, we have seen a stalling of life expectancy, um, particularly between 2011 and the decade after that, inequalities in health widening, uh, and in particular concentrating on the lowest income with all the impact that that will have, not just on early death, but also on productivity. And we all know we've got an issue, haven't we, with economic inactivity and lower productivity, in in some parts of the country. So, uh, as well as the increased need then for, that ill health need, um, results in the need for greater public sector support, which will cost As well so lots of uh, uh, gloomy issues there to say and I think what this means if I can just cut to the chase and maybe we discuss it a bit more rather than having me talk about it now is you know we have to really get serious about health capital because we can't just consider and many have said this before our economic prosperity in this country just being financial prosperity, GDP growth, and so on. It's got to be green prosperity, as we know, but it's also got to do with health and human capital. And we have to get serious about properly having cross-government policies, uh, long-term, all the short-termism we've had, to to really try and recognise that we, where the evidence runs out, we have to construct a strategy best on resulted on on our best understanding about what's going to improve health in the future and and improve the health stock for us all all of our prosperity uh, not least as i say because we we've got a shortage of workers and tech might not be over the horizon to save us it can be done there are there is evidence to suggest that and you know we, we won't. We, it's a big issue but you know just look at East and West Germany how they managed if they had a really serious intent to improve health so I'll stop there no doubt that's lots of discussion we can have on remedies but the health capital please consider government I guess and and not just national but local government businesses and investors as well
0: okay, thank you very much Jennifer thank you. right we've got about um, 45 minutes I thought we should try to cover a bit about the, well there's a few factual questions that have come in on slide if about the report which I think we should just quickly deal with quickly. Then we we'll talk a bit about the crisis so far, both in terms of what's actually happened and then how people are experiencing it and the health outcomes of that. And then let's turn to the future basically both in terms of what's going to happen but also then what can policymakers do, how much scope is there, What have we done the right thing so far, where does that leave us basically broadly. So let's try to do it. so Emily then, unfairly then first questions, for you. The um, so first question up here is basically, on when we were showing the household distributions, are we showing people individual level income distributions or household income distributions?
1: So we are showing household uh, income and it's after housing costs, so includes things like rising mortgage payments, for example.
0: Uh, good. The, um, I think the answer is just no to this, but the, um, on um, the overlap between, here we go, the um, so if you look at the report, there's a lot more demographic splits of all the survey data we're showing, but there's a specific question here, which is alongside the ones we've shown, family size, ethnicity, age, which, again, look at the report, there's lots more than we could show you in slides here. Are there any overlaps with uh, attitudes or lifestyles? I think The answer is no.
1: We don't cover attitudes and lifestyles, no, in the report, but we do look at various demographic groups and show how how they're particularly being affected by the cost of living crisis. So, for example, you can see certain declines in health, um, in particular, focused on black and Asian people uh, in the report versus um, kind of a similar period last year.
0: And and the increases are really quite staggeringly large. I mean, they're stagnantly mm. large across the whole population, mm. but for some groups are really uh, very big. Right, okay, let's talk about then, the crisis so far a bit, and then a bit what these survey results show. Let's, so let's, why don't we start on health, because Jennifer, so one of the questions um, here which is get that, I think it's worth trying to think through how significant this um, is, so here we go. Here's one for, and uh, maybe I mean, you can take this first. I, so this is covered, we should give people the chart they can go to, because those of you online, we know you're multitasking. We know that's what you're all doing when you're sitting at home. So if you, I think it's charts 13 and 14 in the report. And those of you who have done the right thing and come in person, I'm going to read you the stats out, uh, which is basically uh, we've got questions about how much sleep people have lost, um, how often people are feeling under strain and whether they're feeling unhappy or depressed. If you look at a contrast between, so this is people who are not behind on bills. Okay. So this is people who are not seeing the acute, everyone's cutting back really, but these are people who are not seeing the really acute parts of their, they're paying their pain of energy bills still, right? Uh, you, we we had 28% of people saying they were feeling unhappy, depressed back in October 21. The um, uh, the pandemic was pretty depressing as we were going through that, and that's gone up to 36% on the most recent data. But then if you look at those who are behind on bills, you can, you, one or two bills, you're over 60%. So we're talking about really quite widespread uh, health uh, aspects. Is there anything you want to add on that? Didn't
3: No, except the evidence on debt and health and stress and health is strong, actually, and we've known about it for quite some time. Um, As I say, it's to do with weathering of, uh, it's not just mental ill health, which is important enough, but it's also that mental ill health is often the harbinger for future somatic disease of the type that I've mentioned, particularly early cardiovascular and other types of disease. So I think um, we know that um, this will affect the lowest income the most, insecurity, stress, Um, And we also know that the difference in healthy life expectancy between the richest and the poorest in society is 19 years. So, um, poorer people start collecting chronic disease by their early 50s, early 70s, and people in the richest sort of quintile. And the other thing to say is that that not only is there a rich-poor gap, not only is there a north of England, south of England divide, if we're just talking about England, sorry about the Scots for a minute, um, but there's also a poor-poor divide in that the health in the north uh, of the lowest income is worse than the, than the equivalent um, socioeconomic deprivation in the south, and there's lots of explanations for that that we could go into. But so, so these are the this is the individuals that I think I think we should be most worried about, not just now, but also the shadow will 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 definitely go into the future and affect the number of working age population in that particular group. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the people who can work. I mean, yeah.
0: Um, there's two things that came out quite clearly. One of which I wasn't expecting. One of which we were in terms of groups that are really affected. So why don't you, do, we've got one that's the worst, and then we can do the one that's a bit better than we expected. So on wh- the effect on every single measure, whether it's our modelling or it's um, people's survey results, large families are up in lights. If you have a large number yeah. of children, you are having a really tough time. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that evidence was true during the pandemic as well. So this has been going on for the like, constra- continued pressure on that part of the population is really large and basically just doesn't get enough attention. um, So that's for you. And then on the people doing better than we expected, I think, both again in the modeling and in the survey results, retirees, who in general, like historically, older people in front of higher energy bills are the group you would have worried about most, definitely even much smaller energy price shocks in the 90s and think people would have worried about older uh, people a lot more. Really, I mean, unless you think older people answer surveys very differently to younger people and are much more optimistic, the level of like, Distress is just much lower and similarly you're seeing some of that in the final sort, so emily can explain a bit more about that maybe but oh, Larger families what's going on?
2: Well more costs uh, Inadequate benefit levels low pay, uh, you know, we've talked about the two-child limit already um, uh, And those families just aren't able to sustain the increased costs that they're experiencing if you're in a larger household um, You have increased costs. Sorry to be so basic about it, but you know, they're those are the issues that our clients are seeing, whether it's to do with um, school uniform costs, travel um, to school, if they're placed out with a borough, which many of Mm -hmm. our clients are, if they're in temporary accommodation. Um, It's, you know, the extra food cost to be able to, you know, feed a family of four over a family of two, etc, etc. And income and benefits are just not through benefits or work, are just not able to keep up with the level of costs as they've increased over um, recent years. And many of the parents that we support are skipping meals themselves, and we hear this all the time, but you know, I just have to emphasise that people are going without in order to put food on the table to feed their children. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can reflect much further than that. No, the, that the, the, the problems are well known. I, I think it's about understanding. The solutions to those problems and how we can build the momentum for those, you know, policy solutions to be implemented. But I don't know if anything further came out in your survey, Emily, around any of that.
1: I would just add to that. On, on the modelling side, we model relative poverty um, over time, and we look at kind of children in particular. And if you're a one or two-child household, you, you track relatively similar, and your your relative poverty isn't going up over this period. But if you have any more th- children than that then your relative poverty is increasing really starkly and so we discuss that in the report and it's directly linked to, to the
0: policies yeah. and in general if you look if you took a long view <laughs> so you took, tw- the last 25 years it, almost all of the movement in poverty rates not all but almost all is basically it's large families i'm not sure that's always kind of been noticed but it's like three plus families are doing all of the improvement in the 2000s is about large families poverty rates coming down more or less, and the deterioration um, in more recent years is basically all about large families doing work.
3: And, and isn't single parent families they also stand out, don't they, on the JRF poverty? They, come they do, and, it. On, and this too—that's yeah. so yeah. That's a oh, real yeah. issue. It's almost the yeah. standout issue for me, as well as the yeah. extra.
0: Yeah. And we didn't touch much on the um, actual, on the food side. You raise. like the, we asked a lot, like a whole battery of mm-hmm. questions on food. Mm-hmm. And like you say, it's a lot of people cutting back. On the good news, retirees, Emily.
1: So the good news, um, retirees are kind of relatively relatively perky, as as Torsten said in the survey. Of course, everyone is saying that they are still cutting back and trying to cut back. So it's not that, that retirees are doing well, kind of in a non-relative sense, but in a relative sense. Uh, And this has come out in both our survey as well as in our modeling. And so we do see uh, kind of older people, in particular those age 65 and above, just a lot less likely to to try to cut back a lot um, on on any of their expenditure. Um, They're also a lot less uh, likely to be experiencing going behind in in terms of debt. So only about 2% of those over 65 are. Uh, actually going behind on their bills and arrears and that's compared to about 10% of the whole population. So it's really significantly lower for that particular group. One of the key reasons that we've discussed in the past that, that might have driven this is the levels of savings that people accumulate. And we do know that this crisis, because it's squeezing people's incomes right now, if you do have a lot of savings, then you are able to dip into them to, to continue to afford your lifestyle and you know not, not have to make as significant changes. Um, and we do know that, and, and it was shown in the survey, that, that that the older populations do have a lot more savings that they are able to rely on in this period. Um, we've also seen it kind of complemented with some of the policies that government have implemented. So an uprating of uh, benefits in line with the f- inflation also supports the state pension. Uh, so that goes to kind of all pensioners. And that does mean that the we are seeing in terms of the relative and absolute poverty rates, which for the general population are incre- increasing, are actually continuing to decline for the, the pensioner population. So we're seeing it both on a severe level, pe- poverty declining, as well as a general um, level that, that pensioners are relatively doing okay during this crisis.
0: Great, thank you very much indeed. Um, Emily, before we move on to what's coming up next, I was just going you mentioned hardship funds. Mm. Which again, we see th- this comes in a number of different perspectives. There's like charity-provided hardship funds, mm-hmm. and then there's quite a lot now of government money. Mm. Not quite a lot, relative, but like we've seen repeated increases in the amount of money going to local authorities to deliver flexi- flexibility about how they wish to provide hardship funds. What's your? Um, we've had a public report on this back in um, I think it was in September or October. They, um, so you should all go and read that as well. But what's your experience on the ground of how those are playing out?
2: There's not enough. Um, you know, obviously, we welcome the fact that there has been hardship funding over the past uh, while, and um, and that has been increased and topped up. But the scale of the problem is such that it's just not enough, um, and it can be the luck of the draw whether you can access that at your local authority. Uh, the last rounds of hardship funding just from sort of some. <laughs> Uh, on-the-ground feedback from local authorities, the pressure to get the funding out the door meant that they targeted people that were easier to reach rather than needed the funding most. That's my assessment of how uh, it happened in practice. But uh, more broadly, uh, you know, we used to have ring-fenced, what was it called then, the social fund Mm -hmm. um, that acted to help people you know and, and back then i think it would have been to do with big white bulky goods if there was a financial yeah. shock or hardship but that's been eroded it isn't ring fenced and you know over the years we've seen the rise in food banks across towns and cities in the uk because local authority hardship and crisis support has been eroded that's required people to rely on charitable food aid rather than um, go to the state for help and support. We are finding not only are those um, hardship funds a postcode lottery, that even things like discretionary housing payments, which our clients uh, relied on quite a lot, Remind everyone
0: what discretionary housing payments are? So it's
2: a top-up if your uh, income isn't enough to cover your uh, rent, so people in the private rented sector on benefits can get a discretionary housing payment so that they don't end up in rent arrears and, and, and those payments. The amount available for that isn't as much as it used to be and a lot more of our clients are experiencing financial hardship and rent arrears because it's it's harder and harder to access those because funds have been reduced, <coughs> Excuse me, or the way that they're administered is through a housing officer that might not necessarily have a good relationship with um, our clients so sorry to be quite quite negative about it but it's, it, it's an area that I think needs further look at um, and has been part of the discourse around um, ending the need for charitable food aid is really looking at how you can get cash first rights based approach on the ground. Mm.
3: Great,
0: go on Jennifer
3: yeah, I was going to say presumably there's also an issue here for people who have very precarious in, I- amounts mm. of income, it's not as if you have a yeah. planned low amount of income that's steady it's that you have zero hours contract and some days you work and some days you, so how on earth do you apply for, how how can you have a steady income and plan on that basis when your, your access to universal credit presumably has to be titrated according to how many hours you work and that's hard in the paperwork that you mentioned.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean most of our clients are out of work actually because of the disability or health condition they have but that is a notorious issue for those whose, the way universal credit is calculated it can uh, fluctuate greatly because of um, depending on when you get paid, it's yeah. not or people with the technicalities at the moment, but it's very difficult to plan and therefore you don't have the financial resilience or necessarily savings that others do. But it's also meant that charities like ours have to rely on other charitable funds in order to help people with basic essentials. We had a partnership with Turn to us last year, where we gave out £60,000 worth of hardship grants eh, to people in need to simply be able to afford their energy bill or put food on the table because local government um, hardship doesn't support do that right. doesn't doesn't
0: cut it. right now let's look to the future there's some good news coming up I promise, <laughs> a bit of but the um, uh, but let's do our first poll as I said hashtag uh, living standards on slido it's going to come up on the screen the um, so messaging wise the crisis is going to carry on into next year but it's going to change okay the uh, the nature of it who's most acutely affected how people are affected will change this is a question getting into that so if it's energy bills definitely were the they weren't the only thing going on last year um, Emily showed you the chart of food prices which are very significant over the course of last year but but energy is the thing that has dominated the discussions there and so the question is what when we look ahead for the next year is going to be the thing is it still going to be energy bills because of that chart showing you that retail bills will go up again um, in April is it that we see unemployment starting to tick up. If you look at short-term unemployment, that's already started to return to more normal-ish levels. Vacancies are coming down, redundancies have come back up to pre-pandemic levels, more or less now. Is it mortgages? The middle-class squeeze basically starts and gets serious, particularly for younger people. um, Obviously, there's lots of outright owners nowadays, so they won't be affected. Is it because pay, because it keeps shrinking and you end up with more strikes over the course of the year, or is it something else entirely? So come on, Jennifer, what's it going to be? And you're not allowed to say all of them
3: oh you're, you're you look looking to me i i was yes. re- re- relying on people no no <laughs> face- we're going to have democracy in a
0: second but first of all we're having
3: um <coughs> the biggest feature of the year ahead well there'll still be energy bills that's for sure pay is an enduring thing i mean i you know obviously nhs uh, focused yep. um so <coughs> um i'm not sure about unemployment so i would say energy and pay other big things <coughs>
2: I mean, I'm going to go with something else entirely, which is, I think, um, for our clients who rely on Social Security for all or most of their income, I think it's maladministration or um, inaccessibility of rights and entitlements. That's the biggest issue they've been experiencing as far as we've seen for the last five years, and we don't see any improvement to that over the coming period.
0: Emily, what are you going for?
2: I think I'm also...
1: Similar to Jennifer, going for for pay, definitely, um, given that uh, nominal inflation last year averaged about 9%, nominal pay growth averaged about 6%, but it was very different for people in the private sector as opposed to the public sector, and that is based on a much longer period of lower pay growth for people in the public sector, so there's definitely a a longer term squeeze uh, there for people in the public sector. Also, of course, energy bills, and as we've seed, seen uh, from the survey, people are quite likely to be going behind on their uh, energy bill payments, and of course, that can lead you to be changed onto a prepayment meter, where you receive higher uh, rates for your electricity, as well as um, the risks of kind of actually being cut off.
2: And can I just add, sorry, because it Definitely hasn't can. well, it just because it hasn't been mentioned, and we have you know of course welcome that benefits will be uprated in line with September's inflation come April but and I'm sure your report highlights this it's not a it's not real terms 10% increase for for, for our clients because their their costs are higher than other people's so yep. I, I think it's just important to to remember that. Absolutely. that we'll come,
0: let's come back to that in a second because we should and then the interaction of that with the cost of living payments for different groups is really quite um important. Right Colin, let's have the democratic answer then what are people being voting for? The, um, uh, as we have gone through that energy bills plus pay now what's interesting those are the two most universal answers here right so they're, they're the ones what drives universalized pain is inflation's higher than wages for most people and everybody more or less is paying energy bills and so those are the two things that affect the bulk of the population unemployment is a very concentrated pain when it starts to turn up on the current forecast, we're talking about a few hundred thousand people over the course of the year. Mortgages is a bigger group of people, three million-ish, higher mortgage bills over the course of the next year. But it's quite a lot for those that are hit. It's obviously middle heavy, the, um, as we say. And then we have maladministration administration for uh, millions at the poorer end of the market. But you know, insofar as what you're voting for is what's going to get most attention, well, those are the two universal parts of this crisis. Right. Let's talk about what comes next a bit. And why don't we start where you just took us, which is on what's happening at the bottom in terms of policy. Because if you look at them, there's two different things, I think, and again, it's always important to have both sides of every argument in your head, because you're more likely to get vaguely towards the truth on that. So if you look at what is happening in the modelling we're showing you for both 22, 23 and 2324, 24 the income falls are smaller for poorer households. Okay. It's basically a broadly progressive, and we'll come back in a second to what's happening at the very top, because they're more complicated, so forget the really rich for a second, okay? But for the most of the population, the the better off you are, the larger percentage of your income is disappearing over the course of this year uh, and next. So I mean why don't you just explain a bit about why that's happening, and then we can talk about how we should interpret that.
1: So. On average, um, if you are a lower income person, you will receive approximately a 4% fall in your incomes this year and next, as opposed to if you're kind of on the the rich end of the spectrum, you're receiving about a 9% fall. But of course, kind of your budgets are very different and your actual level of disposable income is very different depending if you're kind of on one end of the spectrum or the other. And one of the key things is that we've applied kind of a consistent inflation rate across um, across uh, uh, people uh, and looked at what that's done to people's incomes. But if you apply a differential inflation rate, which takes into account a bit more how much of people's budgets, uh, particularly on the lower end of the spectrum are being spent on food and energy, it means that you do get about a 1.5% difference between the the lowest income households are paying about 1.5% more in inflation compared to the highest income households. And that means that that kind of very progressive fall um, that we model uh, becomes a bit less progressive. It's still slightly better for, for those on lower incomes, but it's about five percent fall over two years, as opposed to eight percent fall for the richest um, over that time.
0: Yeah. So the um, I think if you if you, if you if you step back and said what should policy do when a country that's an energy importer is hit by an energy price shock, then broadly what we have done eventually, a year into the crisis, which is to focus support on those on lowest incomes. 10 percent benefit up rating which if you'd asked me six months ago if it was going to happen i would have possibly thought there was a high chance of it not happening but it is happening in april and these cost of living payments which are basically roughly equivalent to another um one of the authors report actually who's here was saying to me the other day that it's basically the 900 pounds is basically equivalent to doing another bringing back the pandemic era 20 pounds a week per house so these are these are large amounts of cash policy focused on amongst poorer households, not everybody, because some people don't aren't entitled to benefits, the, um, but generally, the, um, and that is a big deal, that is a big deal, and that is what the textbook would say you should do when the cost of essentials go up in a country. You've got to protect those on the lowest income from the rising cost of essentials, and that is broadly what we have done, and that's what's driving that result. The fact that you need to do that, as you're saying, is because the prices have gone up by 10% and the people's budgets were already. Either, either just about managing or belo- or, not. or not managing before this happened. And that's what you also see in the survey results. So both things are true. The survey tells you very clearly it's those on lowest incomes having the toughest time. And the modelling tells you that's happening despite policy doing the right thing and protecting those on lowest incomes. Yes. Yeah. All that? <laughs> I
2: mean, yes. Look, look you know, I think, I think I've said it all already. You know, our clients didn't have the financial resilience to manage this shock. Um, they don't have savings to rely on. They were already struggling to make um, ends meet around, you know, making choices between heating and eating. And now, you know, some can't afford heating or eating. Um, and you know, a lot of our clients have additional costs due to their disability or health condition, but also the poverty premium that exists out there, where their costs are higher than perhaps um, an average household's. Um, prepayment meters, you know, being an obvious example of where their energy costs are, are higher. And you know, there've been sustained cuts to um, benefits over the last decade that has driven that um, that poverty and that financial instability. Um, so despite the much welcome support and one-off um, payments, and we were really happy to see that um, many of our clients who are in receipt of legacy uh, benefits were entitled to those because they didn't receive the 20 pounds a week top up during yep. the pandemic. Um, it's, it's not enough for people to keep their heads above water, unfortunately. So what does that mean for the future, Torsten?
0: Um, well, there's a separate Resolution <laughs> Foundation event coming up soon <laughs> on the adequacy of the uh, uh, benefit system, I think, in February. So you should all come along to that. And in the end, you know, a lot of this stuff, we're talking here about a crisis response, about what do we do about the cost of essentials going up. Obviously, we're all hoping the cost of the energy part of the essentials and food come back down at some point. And there's reasons for medium term confidence, which I'll, we'll come back to short-term confidence in a second in the data. There's then a separate question, which is, assuming we get this economy back to growth at some point, what is it that you do to a benefit system to get us out of a situation that as soon as any crisis comes along, be it pandemic or be it a energy bill crisis, we're immediately putting a load of people a long way underwater, and then we're having to like scrabble around either with hardship funds or with emergency policy responses to stop really acute hardship Mm. um, happening but as I say come back for a future offensive
3: yeah I mean that was my obvious question which is how how can agility be improved because a lot of people will have you know got through the winter let's well not got through the winter so there'll be a lot of damage as a result despite the one-off payment Mm -hmm. before they get their 10% uplift Mm -hmm. so Is there what sort of policy instruments could we put in to make things more agile and much more responsive? Because some people will have lost their homes; they'll have to move out of rented accommodation. The kids will have been torn out of their school, etc., etc. And the stress of of this winter, where someone said, "You know, we've all heard stories, haven't we?" Somebody. Said that they had the choice between um, buying some food for themselves or buying a birthday card for their child. You know that kind of level. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so so can't we be more agile than like largesse in April? And yeah. you See what
0: I mean. Um, With so this level of damage. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. It's <laughs> uh, okay. Um, we should like so within the benefit system or well, the administration of it, which is a lot of what's constraining policy choices here. We now have a reasonably agile. System for delivering up ratings within the universal credit system, not as agile as we'd like, but compared to most other countries and what we are used to, very agile. And then we have a complete turkey of a system for basically adjusting most other benefits swiftly right. okay. over the course of the year, particularly pensions yeah. and disability benefits, where we have the simple version of the yeah. story, which is uh, where the IT system's been updated, we can do it, and we basically can't very easily elsewhere. But I mean, if you're in a, if you're a kind of country that is kind of making improvements and solving problems rather than creating them, those are the kind of things that yeah. policymakers would be focused on. How can you be more agile in the face of? I mean, because that's what firms have done, right? If you look at this year, what have firms done? Brought forward emergency pay rises yeah. to respond to the fact that this is, and that has, that is harder to do in the benefits system. Well,
2: we can give one-off payments to people on um, legacy benefits. I don't, I don't know why we didn't do that during the pandemic, but. <clears throat> I think for me it's about prevention you know if you have people who are in a chronic state of um <coughs> excuse me financial insecurity they're not going to be able to withstand shocks and it's going to affect their health it's going to affect everything opportunities life chances so on and so forth so for me it's about it's not just about agility to do with the um you know Benefit system, or you know, furlough for those who are in work, etc. It's about ensuring people have a minimum income standard. That's my view, so that when big crises like these happen, everyone is able to weather the storm, <coughs> some better than others. But you know, I look forward to, to to discussions about that at future events. Torsten. That, uh, that's very disciplined of you holding yeah. off for of the answer. <laughs> the, um,
0: uh, right. Let's let's do energy. Okay. So I do think this is. Um, we're going to have a problem on this energy thing, basically. Obviously, got to pay for it. But I do think the public understanding what is going on is going to be really difficult in the next six months where they are seeing the news stories about, turns out it's a warm winter, turns out non-russian gas has been more possible to get than we feared turns out german industry's been quite good at not using gas storage in europe is holding up wholesale prices coming down a lot i mean the left hand side of your two part chart is very clear so that's good news and that is really good news like it's energy prices that have made this country poorer they are coming down in the medium term that's what we definitely need to see for this not to be acute forever but retail prices are going to go up in um, uh, up in April, they, um, partly because government has held down retail prices so much. So it's retail prices, wholesale prices, pre-pandemic kind of in line, their um, wholesale prices go through the roof. Government doesn't allow wholesale mm. prices, sorry, this is a rather amateur, doesn't <laughs> allow um, wholesale retail prices to rise in line with them. Now wholesale prices have started coming down, but retail prices are still gonna rise to meet, and they're kind of vaguely gonna come back into alignment over the course of the middle of next year, but all the punters are gonna feel is that retail prices are doing this. Don't take any pictures of that. There, uh, right, so, that is what's actually gonna happen in the next year. Is, uh, so there's a, actually, well, there's, first of all, there's some, there's some really good, quite good questions here from the audience on, so Piers, as Piers is asking us a good question, which is, okay, why on earth is CPI falling then? If Because CPI, right, is measuring retail prices. It's the prices consumers pay. It doesn't care about wholesale prices. Yeah, they only indirectly cause it. So Piers asking us, I don't know if you want to take this, why is the CPI forecast from the OBI the bank coming down so much if we're about to get a whopping great rise in retail prices for energy?
1: So about three quarters of the rise in CPI over the last couple of years has been from three things. It's been from energy costs, which about four percentage points, so of of the 11%, quite chunky Um, it's from food inflation and it's also from other goods uh, which particularly were bought by a ton of people overseas over the pandemic Uh, you saw a massive rise in in u.s demand for goods in particular um, less of a rise in the uk but that meant that that the price for goods combined with supply chain disruptions meant that the prices were really increasing for goods around the world and so that meant um, that for the UK those types of pressures are coming off so even though that the energy has already risen kind of it's already double what it was uh, a couple of years ago it is rising again but it's only rising by 40% this time so it is a rise <laughs> only rising rise. by 40% i mean it's 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 massive but, but it is a year on year rise so it's 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 Rising by a smaller proportion, so you'll still expect that to make up a smaller proportion of CPI uh, as it goes forward. And you're also seeing some of the other pressures, some of the supply chain disruptions, etc., coming down. So, so other goods uh, are also likely to kind of come off, and you'll expect to see some some falls in CPI.
0: Right. On, on directly on Pierre's question, we should expect a April uptick. Might, yes. We may well see an April uptick in the yeah. CPI, even if the downward trend. Um, continues yep. for exactly the reason that Piers is um, setting out. We've got a question from Matt which is basically, I mean Jennifer I don't know if you want to take this but there's um, a fair question which is it's the price like in the economics land because we're kind of central banker kind of focus, right we're all focused on the level of inflation but for if you're a human what you want to know is what, what's happening to the prices you're actually paying uh, in the shops and what's going on with them where you know Everyone that saw the Prime Minister's speech last week, promising that they would halve inflation would be halved by the end of the year. Well that's still inflation of over five percent at the back end of this year. The, um, so I mean, in, in the end, it's the levels that matter, not the it's
3: the price wages. levels. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, for the, all the reasons we've set out in terms of uh, health and stress, you know, who cares what inflation is like unless if, if you're it's the, price in the you know, particularly yeah. on the basic goods, and particular again for the basic goods that are eating up the resources of the lowest paid and the lowest um, those on lowest income. Because that's where the health injury is occurring. I know it's obvious, but it's that's where the, uh, the, the, the storm can't be weathered effectively. Yep. And that's going to stock up quite considerable issues for future. I mean, we haven't talked about economic inactivity and ill health, but um, that's where our future is really quite precarious, actually, with respect to labour shortages, for example.
0: Yeah, absolutely. On, on, just on a mechanistic thing, so what which quarter do we get earnings rising in line with inflation?
1: Um, so
0: if that's what your measure is of stability <laughs> turning up, three? Quarter three? I
1: think it's quarter three. Second half of
0: this year, so you've yes. got to wait till then, I'm being nodded out over here. Right, good. Yeah, um, that's good crowdsourcing yeah. of an answer. Right, so yeah, by the by the Q3 of this year on the OBR's latest voice, it's also worth saying on this basis, which is... If you look at those wholesale gas prices, what we're talking about, and those eventually get passed through into falling retail prices, they, they come down further. They've got to come down from where they are now to get us real. But there's a reason why the OBR's got uh, zero or actual deflation pencilled in for its forecast in some of the future years. The Bank of England doesn't because they always immaculately bring us back to our 2% target. But, um, uh, but that is another possibility. I don't know, you're going to choose how much confidence you put on that as a scenario, but if you see an unwinding, that's the only way we actually get back the living standards is if we see kind of actually very low inflation or zero from energy prices falling at some point in the uh, future. The, um, there's a lot of questions about rent and mortgages. Mm. Some of them saying, can we please stop talking about mortgages and just talk about rent? I've got some bad news for you. Lots of journalists have mortgages. They're going to be talking about mortgages all the way through the next two years and so am I, due to being very upset about what's about to happen. Uh, they at a personal level, that is, as well as for the country. Um, So we're not, but there's lots about, there's lots on this front. So they go through, uh, Mike here is raising the question of the LHA, which you also raised, local housing allowance. So the question does do a bit of this, but do you want to give people an update on what's actually about to happen to the LHA, i.e. not a lot?
2: Well, it, it remains. And what it
0: is, but not everyone that pays a lot of attention.
2: Um, well, you might do a better job okay. of explaining what it is well, than I. You have heard that. From me, hang on. I think we'd love to hear a bit more.
0: Right, the LHA is the support you get for your paying your rent if you're in, that, in the um, housing benefit system and has been frozen even though the rest of benefits are being uprated significantly. Which That's been the long term policy as well.
2: Which means a real terms cut. Which
0: means a real terms cut. So if your rent is going up, you will not get any more money towards that rent if you were at the top of the view at the top of the band, which increasingly is what we are seeing. So more and more people that means that they're paying their rent out of other parts of their income.
2: Or and, not paying their rent. Or not paying their rent and, and rental arrivals rent
0: are very stressful. <laughs> As everyone hopefully knows who's been nice. I think this is a real and there's lots of there's quite a few questions that people have raised about So this, this is a this is a real Issue, it's obviously you'll all see in the news about rising rents.
2: Yeah, and I think it's a really important issue for n- not just for those who um, rely on local housing allowance, but you know, for the demographic of people who are renting because they can't afford to, to buy, not necessarily our client base, but you know, to take a more universal approach to things. Um, and the costs of rent are increasing across the country, but spectacularly so in the capital. It's a well known issue, uh, and more and more people are, are priced out of the market. So, yeah, rents are increasing, and in, in income, whether it's through benefits or whether it's through pay are not matching that and the risks of people becoming um, homeless are therefore increasing, which has a huge impact on on health um, and stability. So I absolutely agree, Mike, we need to talk about rent much more than we need to talk about mortgages. Um,
0: We're going to talk about mortgages again in a second. <laughs>
3: Just to say on health, I mean, housing is a re- is it's, it's quite strong evidence on the impact of housing insecurity on on health. And um, I mentioned earlier about, you know, the impacts of acute and longer-term insults on on health and what might be the most intelligent counter-cyclical investment to mitigate the risks of an insult. And uh, there hasn't been masses of work done on that, but Ben Bar up in Liverpool has shown that local authority spending on housing seems to be one of the most protective effects that you mm-hmm. can... Have on health but as I say more work needed to be done on what might be the most intelligent counter-cyclical investments in an era of resource constraint.
2: Mm. And I think we need to bear in mind the impact of, so so we, we, we freeze local housing allowance, um, more people are, unrefo- are, are unable to afford their rent, rent arrears build up, risks of homelessness increases, homelessness increases and local authorities are not prepared to, to deal with that because they don't have the, the budgets, they don't have the social housing stock, they don't have the quality temporary accommodation that we need, so, so, so it becomes pernicious. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely, that's yeah. um, definitely true. Let, let's um, break all the rules and talk a bit about mortgages. Oh. Uh, so, in, interest rates. Some people win, some people lose.
1: So, as, uh, as we talked a little bit about earlier, interest rates will really benefit people who have a lot of savings Uh, you're seeing kind of savings accounts really increase uh, in terms of the rates that you'll receive and so if you do have savings you're likely to to receive an uptick in your income and it's become going to become a larger proportion of your income over this time period and so that really benefits kind of the the richer uh, deciles uh, rather than the lowest income deciles Uh, for mortgages which um a lot, as Torsten mentioned, does affect a lot of people in the UK. It is a kind of a different story where you're seeing your mortgage interest rate payments uh, increase by about two and a half times over the next uh, couple of years. So it's a really substantial increase in the amount of outgoings that, that mortgages will have. Um, and obviously it's, it's a large debt that, that is quite difficult to pay down otherwise. So, uh, so it's something that will stick with, with mortgages. Yeah.
0: I think the Bank of England's number is the typical fixed, typical fixed-rate mortgage being remortgaged in this year. The bill will go up by three thousand pounds. Right. So for, for those affected, it's a subset of the population. They're people who've had they generally higher income and they're people that have had big income gains, which is what Emily's great chart is showing you. Uh, how the longer term trend is that mortgages' relative income position has improved over the course of the long, the 15 years, 20 years, but, but that is about to come off pretty sharply. Mm-hmm. The, um, and if you want a reason to get your tiny violin out for the very richest, to savings income is about to go up a lot, which is why on that chart, the very top top decile or top vintile? Vintile. Top 5% that Just is top those 5%. who are normal people. Uh, the top 5% their income is actually rising not falling over these two years because the amount they're losing in lower earnings is being outweighed by having a lot of investment income mm-hmm. rising over. But those people, because that investment income is related to assets, a lot of those assets, they're going to see big asset price falls. They're most affected by what we're likely to see in terms of interest rates up Asset prices down. So, again, they benefited over the last 10 years from higher wealth but lower incomes, and they're about to get higher incomes and lower uh, wealth, which I know you're all going to be really sympathetic about uh, <laughs> when those stories start um, uh, coming through. Right, let's look ahead a bit. Okay, so. Um, where is this all going to leave the mm. politics of the next few years? And you can see a bit of this. It's New Year, so you've got two speeches from political leaders because that's what happens. It's like in the political handbook. It has to happen at the beginning of each year, mm. otherwise the new year won't start or something. So, and, then, and you'll have seen some of the discussion is around how is this going to play out? Are we going to go through two years? It's hard and gritty, but then people are going to feel like we've turned the corner, and so it's going to be good news for the Conservatives at the next election, or is it going to be Guys, it was really tough. Why would we want that? So here's your go election predicting. So around two thousand and twenty-four, how is the UK going to feel living standards wise? So not this is not have they solved the NHS (laughs) uh, and everything else on living standards specifically to make this manageable. Is it going to feel like boom time? So remember nineteen ninety-seven. The nineteen ninety-seven is like the last phase of really strong, widespread income growth in the UK. Those were the glory days. The end of the nineties, the early two thousands is as good as it got. Anyone can remember. There was actually what we call the mini boom which happened to living standards in 2014 to 2016, which is when the last energy crisis, the small energy, what now we now call small, we didn't call small at the time, energy price spike of 2013 went away. We got low inflation, we got quite big increases in real incomes around the last, the 2015 general election. Uh, Theresa May uh, did an unusual thing in 2017, which is to call an election when real earnings are falling. Any of you that are going to become the Prime Minister in the future, don't do that no one ever wins an election when real earnings are falling or wins it well just don't call it then Uh, will it be like that Uh, or will it be more like kind of economic crisis mode something actually bad additionally big bad is going to be happening Uh, so it'll be more like a 2010 election how do we deal with the crisis there so pick your election which one is this going to be most like
2: i mean Stagnation.
0: Your your 2017.
2: Mm. Our clients, I think, will feel 2010. But if I take a broader view, I think 2017.
0: Emily, where
2: you go? I'm afraid I'm going to be boring and also say stagnation.
0: Ugh, come on.
1: Um, and that's because uh, whilst we are seeing kind of a decline in incomes over this peri- this last year and this year, incomes will start to rise again next year. And so at the time of the election, incomes will have started to kind of turn around. Uh, but as we've discussed we will still be facing severe kind of long-term stagnation and incomes <coughs> will still be similar to the levels they were pre-financial crisis. So. Okay,
0: Jennifer, please don't pick stagnation.
3: <laughs> well, I was. Um, you know, the, the key question, you know, do you feel better um, yeah. you know, than, you, than you did at the previous election? Probably not. Uh, and I think that will particularly affect parts of the country that have probably been pushed down and down and down, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, the Red Wall areas uh, so I think that is going to be a big big issue for the, the current government and let alone all the other things stacking up, which will not make people feel good, including you know public sector pay, the demand on public sector services, the labor productivity drag still continuing and the shortage hampered by health and, uh, and I think if you know leveling up, you know, I saw that you know, the the area of the country where probably living standards are among the lowest, I guess, uh, and health is the lowest, is the northeast that I keep referring to. I noticed that in the last days of the last year, there was a Devo deal announced, mm-hmm. 1.4 billion with the North Now, that's uh, promising and hopeful, but um, there are some significant areas of the country where I think they've actually lost hope. Uh, and I think unless something like that can be turned around, I think, kiss goodbye to those voters. So, so there may be some focus on those particular areas beyond the devo deal.
0: Right, okay, this is probably the least surprising result of all time then. But let's bring up the results for what people are voting for. They, um, it turns out you're in touch with your voters. <laughs> uh, everyone thinks it's that age. I'm, uh, right, uh, How? Let's give you a plausible story to a mini boom. Mini boom is overdoing it, okay. But like, oh, like decent income growth happening in 2024 and it basically all comes down to whether if energy bills really fall for it, that's the only way you can get, you're not going to get like real runaway wages, running outpacing inflation and productivity, but you could get uh, living standards rising in that year because energy bills go back down to kind of 1,300, 400, which in the olden days we would have thought was really bad. Now we'll think is like the best thing in the world. Uh, ever, and th- that would that would materialise as a high income growth in that one year. So that's a case for a mini boom, not impossible. Five percent, if you think that. None of you think a boom time. I think that's probably right because um, that take basically takes fast productivity growth and low inflation and the rest to all come together. Uh, and no benefit cuts uh, happening at the same uh, time. Right, policy then to wrap us up for the last Steg- five minutes. Stagnation
3: is better than managed decline, which is, uh, which is well, the un- other option. Unmanaged un- decline. Unmanaged decline. <laughs> do you remember Rishi Sunak's speech? He said, you know, we're not going to have we're not yeah. in the position, we, we, we are not planning for managed decline as Okay, well. well, that's really true. Sure. Cool. So, yes. <laughs> so stagnation is is like stagnation is one level above that. Oh, is it? Okay, fine. Maybe, right, maybe okay. that's what we're aiming for.
0: All right, good. Okay, we should not be aiming for stagnation, people. That is not the goal. Right, okay, policy. What does everyone do? So this is briefly, I mean, let's give each of you a chance to be like, what is our, either what do you think, what's your priority or... Um, what do we think the government's actually likely to do in the face of all this? Because broadly, at one level, the government thinks it's come it came in out of 2022 saying, right, we've now basically, with the exception of having to set out the details for what we're going to do for firms, which is happening in the next few days, we're basically done on the cost of living support. Mm-hmm. And now we want to talk about some other things. We want to get inactivity down in the labour market. We want to reform our tax system in a few ways. That's what they want the budget to be about, a growth budget in March. We're done on this side of things. They, um, so what do you want and what do you think is going to happen?
2: Well, look, in terms, I have to speak from our client basis perspective, Um, and for us, we need to make sure, you know, at a very base level, and I've said it so many times already, is the adequacy of benefit levels, first and foremost. They need to be able to um, allow people, you know, a minimum level of income that doesn't force them into destitution, which it does all too often at the moment. Uh, there needs to be some work to address some of the um, caps and limits that are currently in place. You've you've mentioned already, and we have earlier, two-child limit, um, etc. There needs to be a huge uh, amount of work done around deductions and sanctions, because unfortunately that's pushing people into uh, debt and insecurity at the moment too. Uh, For us, as I've already mentioned, there's the issue around people who are entitled to benefits, no matter what level they're at at the moment, who are denied them through a flawed and inadequate disability benefits assessments process and we think that needs urgent reform and um, too much time is lost uh, and too much resource has gone into you know uh, challenging decisions at tribunal 80% of which you know DWP's decisions are overturned so they need to get decisions right um, first time um, and, and and look I think there's something broader around having a conversation as a society about what is a social contract that we Want to have as a society. Sorry to go really big, big picture here, but um, you know, what, I think what the pandemic and what this cost of living crisis has done is shine a light on how uh, you know a percentage of the population has been um, uh, experiencing for the last uh, decade, and, and I don't want us to lose that opportunity um, to try and continue that conversation at, at that bigger uh, base level. What do I think will happen? I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I hope that there's an opportunity with the white paper that we've already discussed to to talk about what policy change and what practice change is needed as the very minimum, but also, you know, an assets-based approach to looking at some of the economic inactivity stuff around, you know, what are the structural barriers that prevent some people from being economically active that affects uh, many of our clients. Um, So that's it in summary for me. Very good. That's
0: That's great. Emily, why don't you... Give us your answer. And you can take this last question as we go through, which is a bit on the positive side, which is basically, isn't it OK because people built up savings during the um, uh, crisis, and so in the pandemic, sorry, and so it's not actually that bad uh, now. So so we can just, whether the government's done what it's done, we're gonna, the middle class and the upper class are going to draw down savings, poorer households have been given the benefits, income increases, we're done. What do you reckon?
1: So, I think that like savings absolutely are really important, and it was great that, that people had managed to save during the COVID pandemic. However, it was as you say, Torsten, uh, higher-income households which were able to save. So on aggregate, savings went up. It's middle and higher-income households who were able to do that. Lower-income households didn't receive, didn't, weren't able to make those savings at the same time and, in fact, sometimes saw savings reduced during that period. Um, and so that has kind of challenged the financial resilience and also tied to some of the health outcomes that we've been discussing today. It obviously has been three years or so of, of kind of significant health uh, challenges. So whilst your financial health might be better if you're at the top of the distribution, you're still seeing on aggregate kind of your health decline because you're more stressed about these things. Um, in terms of the benefits, uh, which I think we haven't really discussed today, the, the way that we're ta- targeting benefit, uh, payments through the benefit system does, of course, lead to really quite substantial cliff edges, which existed before these cost of living payments, but uh, made even kind of more severe because so much of the the benefits, a bit, so much of the payments are being channeled through the benefit system, so if you miss out on one month of um, of receiving universal credit, for example, you won't receive the payment in the next month, so it is really important um, that we are making sure that people who are entitled to benefits are actually receiving them, and also maybe work through some of these cliff edges that, that people are facing. Um, and the other thing I would say on policy is there are two ways that we can get energy prices to come, or energy costs, I guess, for households to come down. One of them is, of course, kind of the regulation that we've implemented through the EPG, um, the energy price guarantee and and wholesale gas prices falling, so a limit to, to how far they can actually rise, maybe evolving that to some kind of social tariff, which does enable some kind of. Uh, Uh, targeting uh, on the basis of incomes um, and also ensures that people with higher energy need if if you have a disability for example Mm -hmm. you might have a higher energy need and therefore you shouldn't be penalized by having just a kind of one-off payment you need to be able to to match that to your energy consumption Mm -hmm. but the other way to get energy costs down is of course uh insulation and so some of our other work um through the economy 2030 inquiry has really focused on how can we ensure that that we insulate the uk and on in aggregate uh really bring down energy costs as a whole for households um because if you don't need to heat your home then you save a lot of money um and yeah and the, it, and the
0: planet too. So very good, Jennifer Laswell. You
3: oh, all of the above. Thank you. And um, the only thing that I would extra add, I think, is that um, or reinforces one is that I think you know we have a kind of cognitive blindness towards improving health beyond the NHS. You know, the NHS is only 20% of improving our health; 80% is all this other stuff. So to have a proper cross-government policy on that. Um, uh, and the other thing is that, going back to the public sector, in particular the NHS, in some parts of the country, the public sector is all there is, or mostly what there is. And it is a significant anchor in the face of a lot of insecurity locally. So there's quite a lot of things that these anchor institutions can be doing, in particular primary care, and, which is under, under stress, as you know, and hospitals to employ local people and to you know, operate. Banks or social prescribing, whatever. There's quite a lot that public services can do, but ultimately, I think we need to get serious about health.
0: Yeah, good. The, um, that's a good idea for everyone. Right, I'm going to wrap us up and we can go out to our um, cold, but not as cold as it was a few weeks ago, uh, live. So uh, thank you all very much for coming, either in the human or uh, online. Thank you for a lot of great questions that we've tried to do justice to, but the long list was uh, too long for us to get through all of them, but we got through lots, and thank you for giving us your answers to all of those. Keep up your New Year's resolution to come to every Resolution Foundation event. It is the gap in your life. And can we all thank our panel for Emily, Anila and Jennifer. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.